You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics, and today is no exception. We're going to have an hour-long show today, and we're going to be talking about the church some. One of the common sayings we hear today is, Lord, save me from your followers. And I remember years ago even reading a book by Philip Yancey, Soul Survivor, How My Faith Survived the Church. Sadly, the church has been seen as one of the few organizations that shoots its own wounded. Where today, I've got someone who was quite burned by the church on my show, but she's a trooper. She still believes. Why is that? Well, let's find out talking to her. Her name is Mary Jo Sharp. She's a former atheist from the Pacific Northwest. Mary Jo was raised without religion. She is now an assistant professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University and the founder and director of Confident Christianity Apologetics Ministry. Mary Jo is the author of Lifeway Christian Resources, Why Do You Believe That? Bible Study and is working on an upcoming book on hypocrisy, hypocrisy titled Why I Still Believe, which we're talking about today, with Zondervan. She is an itinerant speaker on apologetics throughout North America and has engaged in formal debates on Islam. She focuses on using love and logic in order to uncover truth. So, uh, Mary Jo, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Hey, Nick. Thank you so much for having me on. Great to have you on here. Now, if my audience doesn't know much about you, tell us about how you got to be doing what you're doing, which I'm sure will get us into the book as well. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Okay. So I didn't mean to be doing what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually thought my life goal was to take over John Williams' place at the Boston Pop Symphony Orchestra. So I was on a path to being a a music educator and and ultimately an orchestra conductor. So what happened was that um, I didn't grow up Christian and I didn't grow up in an overtly Christian part of um, the country. Uh, but I had a person who was very, I had a high school band director, so a musician in my life, who was very uh, burdened for me. And he, my senior year of high school, he took a chance and for the first time in his life, he witnessed to somebody about his faith and he shared with me that a Bible, he gave me a Bible as a going away gift and said, hey, when you go off to college, you're going to have hard questions. I hope you'll turn to this. So I, I went off to college. I I had been reading that Bible, and I had come to a point where I, um, you know, I, I was seeking after God. And I finally went to a church. I was invited to a church where I heard a clear presentation of the gospel. It made sense to me. Uh, I put all the pieces together, and I trusted in Jesus. But then, then I found the church, and uh, it was fa- it was kind of interesting to me in that 
part of what drew me to God was the great beauty I found in the world, uh, in music and in nature, just all around me, mm-hmm. and in the sciences. And so I, you know, when I'm going to church, I'm expecting to find all these people that are as impressed, right, with the truth, goodness, and beauty of God. And <laughs> I discovered that the church is not always so beautiful. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, <laughs> she's got a lot of problems and I didn't know that. Uh, so that causes me some of the experiences that I had in the church. Well, actually a lot of the experiences, um, caused me some doubt. And the reason that I'm in apologetics is because I just went searching for answers to my doubt and it, it landed me in this field, which I, I never meant to be in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I found it even amusing at one point when you found out some more about this field and you tell your husband, Roger, about it, and there's that great line of a book, something along the lines of, Apologetics, what's that? Uh, I'm sure that's pretty <laughs> embarrassing right now. <laughs> yeah, no, he, he owns it. <laughs> He'll own it. He says uh, he was in seminary at the time, too. So uh. he was like, you know, I never, I never heard it even in seminary. But this, is, this was a while ago. Apologetics has had sort of a renaissance since mm-hmm. then. And so most... I mean, most people who attend seminary now know what it is. But, yeah, back then he was like, I don't even know what that is. So I had to explain it. (laughs) Yeah. Now, let's talk a little bit about how this kind of started with you're getting burned. You come to the church or wherever a pastor comes to you, visits you, and you decide that you will become a Christian. And so you have to go to church and give your story about how you came to Jesus and you know, a public declaration of faith. What happens exactly? Yeah. So, um, the very, so we got to kind of set this up. So I'm a Pacific Northwesterner and I'm at the time I'm a, you know, short, spiky haired, no makeup wearing Northwest culture kind of person. And I'm coming into this Southern evangelical situation. Um, so I'm already uncomfortable because I don't look like everybody else. And, I don't necessarily act like everybody else. And uh, so I'm nervous going to the church for the first time uh, as a new believer. You know, I, want, I don't want to do the wrong thing. I feel like the new kid in class. So I, I'm asking my husband, we're really poor at the time because we're young college students. We have a new baby. And um, so I have like two dresses. So I choose one. My husband says, I, I check with him because he's he comes from a, a church background. And he's like, oh, yeah, you look great. Everything's fine. You're, like, you're making too big of a deal out of this. And, and I'm like, okay, I'm just kind of nervous. So we go to that church the first day. And <laughs> as we're coming in towards the sanctuary, the pastor's wife has set herself up. Mm-hmm. And she's greeting everybody. Um, so, yeah, she's greeting everybody. And, you know, hey, how are you doing? All that stuff. So I'm, I'm excited because... You know, this is the pastor's wife uh, of the person that led me to the Lord. So I'm expecting this. Hey, welcome to the church, and you know, congratulations on you know you're coming to know the Lord. I'm expecting to be encouraged and all that. I walk up to her. She looks at me. I'm smiling like, hey, and she's her smile drops, and the first words out of her mouth are, "We need to get you better clothing, something that doesn't show cleavage." And I'm looking down at my conservative dress. <laughs> I'm like, what? what is going on? I don't know what, what, that's not what I expected was to experience a judgmental attitude. Like the very first time I'm going to church as a new believer. And, uh, like you said, when you set this, this section, this little part up, um, 
from the book, you know, I have to walk the aisle that day. I have to walk up in front of everybody, uh, up to the front, and make profession of faith because that's how this church did things. And so here I am being told I'm inappropriately dressed. Um, it, it puts me on, on the defensive immediately. And, uh, you know, I'm embarrassed because I, I didn't know I had made a wrong decision. So I know for some people it's to be like, come on, it's just clothing, right? Mm-hmm. She made a bad choice. But the problem is that this kind of stuff happens all the time, and it's a lot of it in the church. The, the focus is on the wrong thing where somebody should have blessed a believer, a new believer in Christ, or encouraged them knowing that this person is coming from an entirely different culture into something that they are unfamiliar with and a little nervous about, instead of taking that opportunity to bless in accordance with, you know, the New Testament teachings, she took an opportunity to be judgmental. Yeah. And this is the kind, and she's a leader in the church. And so these are the kinds of things I'm saying, you know, the hypocrisy of believers, it doesn't have to be the big stuff the church has done wrong. It can be these daily little things gnawing at people's faith gnawing at their belief that other people really believe in a real god to whom they're morally accountable Mm -hmm. yeah i'm thinking a couple of things when i hear that one is a more humorous something i wonder if this lady would think if she went back in church history because i think originally when men and women were baptized they were baptized in the nude That's right. So, I mean, that, that would have been, very, uh, of course, women were baptized by women, I think. So, but, Yes, they were. <laughs> but then the second thing, the more tragic point is, you did keep going. I wonder how many people didn't. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's the thing is that when you come in looking for, when, you, when Christ draws you to himself and you're expecting to have some kind of experience of joy and of freedom and you they immediately just get slammed to the ground um it, it's just it's really shocking it's jarring mm-hmm. to see that the believers in christ are and the way i say it is oh they're human they have all the same problems as other humans in the world mm-hmm. so part of my problem was that I had a bit of unrealistic expectations that these people would be better mm-hmm. than um, other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, let's also talk about how here you are also a Christian, and later on you want to bring an atheist friend of yours to an event where they're discussing creation of all things. And as soon as I have like, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this cannot go well. This can definitely not go well. And what's interesting when I read this chapter is your atheist had a very thoughtful question. I mean, even referencing St. Augustine, to which I'm thinking, how many atheists have even bothered to read St. Augustine? What happens in this meeting here? Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that one was, that was a tough one for me because I'll give a little bit of background reference on it. I had taught a class. I've been asked to teach a class in apologetics in the church, and the church was in a scientific community. So my first thought was, well, yeah, let's do a science apologetics class. So I taught a course surveying views of creation because I figured in in a church full of scientists and engineer types that we would have a lot of different views on um, the age of the earth controversy. Mm -hmm. So I was just doing a survey. I have an education background, so I was treating it like a survey. I was just giving the information, um, giving them, you know, thoughts 
questions to think on, and they were coming to their own conclusions because I'm I wasn't a pastor of the church. I wasn't pushing mm-hmm. any specific view. Because I taught that class and I didn't teach the specific view, one specific viewpoint, the church taught another course, like in reaction to mine. Wow. And um, yeah, <laughs> so they wanted to uh, basically they wanted to set the record straight. But the the interesting thing, Nick, was there was no record to set straight because I didn't teach any one way as the actual. Like, this is the truth, and if you don't believe this, then, you know, you're not a Christian or something. I didn't do that. I was just surveying. Mm-hmm. So um, they taught a class to respond to mine to say, no, there's only one way to view this issue. Um, and I had a friend. There were two of us in church that really knew this guy, and he was an atheist. He wanted to come when he found out what the church was teaching on. I was a little skeptical about inviting him to begin with because I kind of knew what this class was doing. But we, you know, I didn't want to turn him down. So sure, let's go. I was going to go with him, make sure that, you know, (laughs) well, I was trying to make sure that what happened didn't happen and it happened anyway. Um, So yeah, we were sitting there in a a session and uh, he, he wanted to ask a question about why the church was saying that if you don't have this one view of creation, then you're basically, they were leaning on and that you're not really saved because it's connected, this doctrine is connected to people being saved. And he was trying to show them, no, actually it's not. And when you make these kind of claims, uh, you're showing yourself up as kind of ignorant. He didn't say it that way. He was very polite. And he, he used the quote from Augustine that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and he asked him about that. Well, he gets immediately shut down um, and hard. Uh, so, yeah, the... The pastor of the church comes over and just starts, just in an angry, aggressive tone, just starts telling him, you know, the way things are and that this is how it's got to be and that this is, you know, salvation is connected to, you can't say you're not saved, but, you know, it's connected to this doctrine and and, and then just <laughs> grabs a stack of magazines he has with him and just plops it down in this guy's lap. And I'm just horrified at the treatment the seeker is getting in our church. Um, so the guy sits there like shocked for a little bit and then he, um, he gets up and he makes his way out while the class is still going and I'm chasing him down, trying to apologize, telling him that I would talk to him if he had questions. Basically he says, it's not your fault. He gets in his car and I never see it or hear from him again. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Nick, that wasn't the only time something like that happened on that issue. Yeah. Um, even after confronting the people involved and saying, Hey, this isn't a good way to do this. And you know, um, it's it kept happening. So there was no remorse over it. There was no concern mm-hmm. by the leaders or by the pastor that the way they behaved was um, antithetical to the teachings of Jesus and to the New Testament. Uh, mm-hmm. They didn't care. Yeah. So uh, this this was something. That's hypocrisy, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the problem of hypocrisy. This is why people are saying you as the church preach love and patience and kindness and goodness and do unto others as you want others to do unto you and then you don't do that yep i i agree entirely i you talked to some of the places that i've experienced the most pain in my christian life and some of the biggest people i've met have been total jerks um churches and christians are right on top of the list sadly i i really hate saying that but I'm also entirely positive I'm not alone when I say that. Yeah. Isn't that, it's unfortunate um, that that is a testimony. It's not the only testimony, so we want to make sure we're not 
just condemning the whole of Christianity. But it's it's sad that that is a testimony coming out of the church at all. Yeah. Um, that people see that. Go ahead. Yeah. What amazes me though is there. Hey, at least you got to teach an apologetics course. And you know how many times I've been in churches and pretty much begged for the opportunity to teach apologetics. And I'm poor, but I would look and say, hey, I'll do it free, no charge. I just want to teach. And churches just aren't interested, but then they'll go with any fly-by-night ministry that comes through. It seems flashy and exciting. They'll go with that, but if you come in actually teaching apologetics, no, they're not interested. Yeah. And it's sometimes I think it's a um, if we want to you know extend an olive branch. Sometimes I believe that churches think that apologetics is gonna it's gonna teach their people to be argumentative, mm. and you know you got then that's when you got to say well you know who's the teacher or is that how they are as a person? If they're not, mm. they're not going to teach people to be argumentative. You should allow uh, this is a. A great work. You should allow this great work to, because it's mm-hmm. so impacting people's lives when they realize that there's so much evidence surrounding faith in God, and that it can be life changing for people. Mm-hmm. I mean, life changing. And it, it it does sadden me as well that some churches don't allow people to teach um, apologetics. Well, here you go. I have to tell you, I I'm sadly much more cynical. I think, than you are about this. Although you could just be presenting a positive side and you could agree with what I'm saying next. But I honestly think sometimes churches don't want people like myself to teach apologetics. Pastors don't particularly because they don't want to risk someone in the church who might get more popular than they are. I I sometimes think that, you know, if I walk into a church and say, I'm a seminary student, but a pastor might be watching me with extra caution at that point, saying, "Mm, are you wanting my job? And I don't see, I say, no, I'd suck as a pastor. And I know I would. (laughs) I can preach a sermon, but do not put me in a pastor. I would be horrible at it. But I really think that's going on sometimes, that there are some pastors who are jealous of their pulpit. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. I mean, we, we can't know the hearts of any individual, but I did have an experience where I wasn't, what were we teaching? We were teaching a class. It wasn't our, our new believers class. It was actually the apologetics class. My husband and I were te- uh, team teaching an apologetics class in a church, and it did, throughout the summer, it maintained a higher membership than the pastor's class, and it did cause problems with that pastor. Um, there was jealousy going on. So I know I know that that happens, and that's one of the Nick. That's one of the difficult things about um, the pastorate mm-hmm. is um, it can attract people who are attracted to being the center of attention. And yep. uh, so the narcissistic tendencies can be there as well, because again, they're fallen human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, which probably, I mean, that's probably one of the reasons that James says that not many people should put themselves in these positions. Mm-hmm. They shouldn't be teachers or leaders because there are so many temptations to pride, arrogance, jealousy, you know, mm-hmm. uh, being being the, the showman. So we have to be very cautious about that with our pastors. Uh, if we feel called to the pastorate, if somebody feels called to the pastorate, they need to really do some introspection because, yeah, I agree with you. I think some of those things are happening. Mm-hmm. 
Hi, this is Jay Warner Wallace. If you're a fan of clear thinking and of being able to make the case for what you believe as a Christian, to be able to make the case for truth, well, this is a great place to learn how to do that. This is Deeper Waters with Nick Peters. Nick has a number of great guests on his show, and I've been just honored to be one of those guests. So if you want to carve some time to be able to become a better Christian case maker, this is the way to do it right here at Deeper Waters with Nick Peters. Yeah, I I have a I know I struggle often with pride, honestly. But fortunately nowadays, I have a great aid in correction to make sure I don't get pride for. That's called a wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good help. Help, isn't uh-huh. it? <laughs> now you have a chapter also on God. Are you there? And I I think this is a question. Every Christian has, to some extent, asked at least at one point in their life. Yeah, yeah, and my my chapter centers around the point at which I was saying, I don't know if I want it to be true mm-hmm. that God exists, because I'm so disappointed in what I'm finding in churches uh, that I'm I'm upset. Like, <laughs> I, I think my desire. My desire was mixed. It was confused. In some sense, I didn't want there to be a God because then I could just walk away from all of this. Mm. I could walk away from all this pain and hurt and just leave it behind, Mm. do my thing. Nobody can tell me what to do. Um, And then the other side of me said, but, you know, there's this, this idea that it might be true. And am I willing to just say, yeah, I don't care. Uh, and I, I really wasn't willing to just say I don't care. So I'm looking. This chapter gets set up by the fact that I'm kind of looking for arguments to, like, for the atheist arguments. I'm kind of going into it. It's about a, listening to my first debate and really hoping that maybe these atheist arguments are smarter, sleeker, and sexier than the Christian arguments. So I can just say, yeah, look, you Christians, you you're covering up ignorance and arrogance with your authoritarianism and so i'm kind of hoping to find that but i as i'm listening to that debate which is what the chapter takes you through is that experience that first experience hearing uh, a debate where atheists actually think it was a good debate um and (laughs) just hearing the arguments and really how disappointed i was in the atheist arguments Mm -hmm. and how that really impacted my search yeah I often, it's quite a odd for me sometimes because when I'm in the midst of suffering in my own life, sometimes I really hate being an apologist and a theologian at those times because I'm like C.S. Lewis then. I look and I say, God, I know based on the evidence you're good. I know you're real. I know you're loving. And then I look at all this and think, why is this going on then? It'd be so much easier if I could say he's not there or even he's not entirely loving or he's not entirely powerful, all these other things. But no, I'm surrounded by all these omni-qualities and I, I, I just can't deny them. Sometimes it makes it harder, actually. Yeah, I really like your point there, Nick. And uh, that's... You're touching on some of the things that I'm gonna that I hit mm. in that book. Uh, um, is that it's not? It, you know, I hear so many times from atheists that this is like wish fulfillment, <laughs> or that it's our fairy tale because we're afraid of the dark or something like that. And I'm like, wow, no, uh-huh. <laughs> not 
a fairy tale. Mm. You know, a fairy tale is amazing and wonderful and happy, and there's a great ending. It's just like, oh my gosh, it's awesome. This is more like real life. This is more. This is one of the things about Christianity mm. that really impressed me, is that it really does explain the human experience, specifically regarding pain and suffering in the world. And um, the hard thing, like you're saying, is to get from the theory of it, knowing it, but then to um, apply it into your life when it's hard. Mm -hmm. And one of the, going back, just throwing back a little bit to something you said earlier, you know, churches, one of the benefits of, of teaching apologetics is that you're helping people find these foundational truths they can rely on during times when they are having like a Job experience, like why is this happening? I don't understand this, this isn't good. This doesn't, you know, this doesn't seem like it's good for me or my family. Um, they still have those foundational truths, but can you get around God's existence? Can you get around Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead? Uh, sometimes it's important. Well, it is always important to have that foundation because that you have to keep coming back to that. Doesn't make your experience easier, yeah. not at all. Um, but it does help you say, "What do I know?" Mm-hmm. Um, and and ch- churches can help people do that part before they hit these really hard times, like going through depression, um, going through suicidal thoughts, going through um, disease, going through the death of a loved one. You know, churches can help us by dealing with these foundational issues of you know, why is it, why do we say God's good when there's so much evil in the world before they walk through these horrible experiences in their own lives. I'd like to remind when you're listening to Deeper Waters podcast, you got Mary Jo Sharp here talking about her upcoming book, or it might be already out right now, Why I Still Believe. If you're here next week, well, I'm working on that. Give me time. I'll find someone here. But for now, let's get back to Mary Jo and talk about this book. You know, some of the things you talk about, my own wife struggles with very much, as I'm sure you know. And something she's said to me that's mm-hmm. very hard for me to hear, but I don't know how to respond to it because it resonates too much in my experience. She says, the church is meant to be a place for sick people, but it isn't. Like, what do I say mm-hmm. to that? Because it's true. I mean, I remember... One time when we were in a church in Knoxville, she was really doubting, going from emotional doubt. She knew it was emotional. And she asked for prayer in a small group. And I said, we don't talk about that kind of thing here. Wow. Wow, Christians. <laughs> oh, we need to grow in towards Christ-likeness. Mm-hmm. We need to take sanctification seriously. Yeah. I remember someone yeah. in that group even saying at one point, says, you know, I'm saved. My children are saved. I'm just going to sit back and wait for Jesus to come. And I'm saying, okay. Oh. And what about if your children go off to college? What happens in? And what about your children's friends? Do they not matter? Or is it just mm. once you're taken care of, hey, let's just quit, you know? Right. Yeah. That's, um, well, we're going to sound a little bit condemning here, but. You know, shallow Christianity is not okay. No. Uh, to t- to tell people I'm saved, I'm good, that's not even biblical. No. Uh, that's not New Testament faith. That's not Old Testament mm-hmm. faith. You know, Paul talks about uh, working your 
working on your salvation. He's talking about sanctification, not about justification, but you're growing towards Christ-likeness, mm-hmm. right? What does that mean to people? If you say, What's, you know, I'm saved and I'm good and that's it. Okay, okay well... Jesus came to show us how to be human, right? There is a yeah. way that we are supposed to be as humans. There's a way that we flourish. And if you are truly a fallen human being in a, in a fallen world, you don't know what that is unless you are working towards the example that Jesus showed us mm-hmm. uh, through praying and fasting and uh, studying and worship and all of the spiritual disciplines that go with mm-hmm. that for someone it's very to me it sounds very arrogant yes. Nick, and pretty shallow mm-hmm. for someone to say you know that's me and jesus we're good i'm done mm-hmm. i'm just waiting for heaven well what are you doing what is the purpose of you on earth as a christian mm-hmm. it's not so you can just have your little american dream and sit in that and be you know watch your sunday football or yeah. whatever and <laughs> like know all the players in football or whatever, and then just really not know anything about your Christian faith. That's not what God is doing with mm-hmm. you. You're, and, and it's not to be condemning. It's more like you are missing out on the huge blessing of sanctification, of being stretched, of growing in your faith, of helping people, like what you're talking about with your mm-hmm. wife, helping people who are feeling marginalized, feeling mm-hmm. um, depressed, you're missing out on being a huge blessing in their life mm-hmm. by uh, being there to speak into their life, to hear them, and to be a part of um, their sanctification process. Mm-hmm. So Christians, we need to, as Christians, we need to take our sanctification process seriously. Uh, yeah, you're justified by, you know, Jesus' blood's c- got you covered, but there's so much more than fire insurance, yeah. right? There's a way you're supposed to and Christ came to show us that as well. You know, uh, we have to kind of jump all over your book, so we can't, we definitely can't cover everything. But one point you made while going on me at that uh, some of the best lessons you've received have come from two unlikely sources an ex Muslim and a psychopath. <laughs> a sociopath. sociopath. Close. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You want me to talk a little bit of about course. this? <laughs> yeah, so when I when I was searching for answers to my doubt, I found this degree program in apologetics at Biola University. And the way they have it set up, you go to the campus for two weeks to do um, on-campus hours in the, in the summers. So I was there doing that my first summer, and I met these two guys, David Wood and Nabil Qureshi, and Nabil was there going to class because he had become a Christian recently. And David thought it would be a good idea for him to get some education. He thought an apologetics degree was perfect to you know, get him going. So um, I met these two guys, and we, we actually ended up going out to dinner together. And I watched this conversation between them unfold. And uh, I, was, I was fascinated that they were debating Muslims. They were debating atheists. And I was also fascinated that when they spoke with me and I gave my opinions and my, you know, I would express what I thought, they treated me with respect Mm -hmm. and they didn't blow off my, they didn't blow off what I was saying because I was a woman. Uh, They they really did respect what I had to say. In fact, so much so that they, when I asked them if I could do a review of one of their debates, they brought me into, um, I did a review 
They loved it, posted it on their um, Answering Infidels website, uh, and then started bringing me out to help them do debates. So um, what they, they taught me, so the lessons. Uh, so as I was doing ministry with these two, I started to see that there was a big difference between David and Nabil and myself. David and Nabil, they were just all in for King Jesus. They were all in. Uh, these guys would get death threats. These guys um, would get called all sorts of names. They did not care because, as David would call him, King Jesus is in control. You know, like, uh, it's okay because I won't go before King Jesus. Like, I'm not going to die before King Jesus uh, says I'll die. You know, like, he's, he's in control this you know, he knows how long I'll be here and I'm not going before that time so I, I began to see these guys not only were they totally trusting God but they were they were just sold out believers and they wanted to bring as many people with them into the, the kingdom of God now the contrast to me was that I was very introverted and I was using that as an excuse to you know just be into myself and what I wanted and to have my my own little haven, my own little home, my own little American dream the way I wanted it. What they were doing seemed very invasive of my private life. And it seemed like you really would be putting a public target on your back. And for me, I might have said at that point unnecessarily because I was raised in a culture of live and let live, keep your religion to yourself. It's actually kind of rude to try to tell people that what you think about religion is true. So these two sort of challenged me. I began to see the difference, you know, and I began to think on why am I so, why am I so committed to protecting myself? If, if I really believe that Jesus rose from the dead, if I really believe that God is sovereign, what is this in me? And I couldn't, I, I called it something like fear. Um, and it wasn't a fear of just danger, you know, or losing my life. It was a fear of letting go of control. Mm -hmm. Um, and they, the sociopath and the ex-Muslim, <laughs> these two larger-than-life friends of mine who were just bounding into situations and you know, trying to grab as many people along the way to bring along with them into the kingdom of heaven, they really challenged me on my um, control issues that I feared you know, people, if I went public, people could say whatever they wanted to say about me, and I couldn't control that, and I can't control what other people do, so I could be putting my family at risk by testifying, you know, to the truth of Jesus, especially in, you know, certain circumstances where things get heated, like in public debates and such. So, um, they really showed me that I had selfishness, uh, and my heart was selfish, and, and that expressed it itself in my wanting to not be involved mm -hmm. publicly. Uh, and they really helped open me up to circumstances where I could say, okay, I'm going to trust you, God. This is not what I want to do. This is totally against who I am. I don't like this at all. But they put me in situations where I had to open up to other ways of being uh, in the world and open my heart up to ca really caring for other mm -hmm. people. Yeah, I find that extremely difficult also as a strong introvert as well. And I'll go ahead and put in my own little plug here. My wife and I knew Nabil Qureshi very well. And he did recently. The anniversary of his death was just two-year anniversary. was just recently sometime. And 
David and yeah. Marie Wood have always been there for us in such a great way. And we, these are really excellent people. There's a funny story, actually, about David Wood, that when my wife was in seventh grade or so, she uh, she went out somewhere. You know, her dad, Mike Lacona, had in a project's dream team he was forming, and David was part of that. Mm-hmm. And she came back one day from walking the dog and she was crying because of the neighborhood bullies and David just says you want me to walk the dog with you <laughs> and he, I, I think he told <laughs> us later on I mean I, I don't remember the story he said yeah where I am I've got five brothers I could just point at anyone and said cure him and they would have done it <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and and the listeners need to know that David is a big guy. Like, he's oh yes, six foot something, and he is mm-hmm. he's mm-hmm. built. <laughs> yeah, he's a big guy. Mm. So that's really funny. I'd like to remind everyone at this point you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. And if you can, if you want to support us, I would really, really appreciate that. Like we said, we're poor. We need it. This is a free service we do for you. So go to my website, deeperwatersapologetics.com, and look up uh, there on the side. There's a link helps with the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. You uh, click on that link. And when you do, you get taken to the ministry of Risen Jesus. As I mentioned, those are my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. You make your donation, and you get it to me. You get in touch with me or Allie or Mike or Debbie and tell us and that you want to go to us. It'll be tax deductible. You can also buy some e-books I've uh, written or co-written, including one about Dan Barker, who I debated a few months ago. And... Uh, also, the Mention Boss Project, very popular one. And if you can't do that, just go on iTunes and leave a positive review. I'm not saying as much because we got a lot of stuff I still want to cover. Um, Mary Jo, is there some organization or charity you'd like to see people cover? Donate to? Well, first of all, I will re- I will, yeah, I will emphasize what you said, yeah. Um, the, the work that people do as apologists... Um, you know, it doesn't seem as tangible, maybe, to some people as um, some of the social services that are out there. But it's it's very important work because it, it can change paradigms, mm-hmm. it can change um, ideas, and it can it, it can impact people in amazing ways, like full mm-hmm. life changes. Um, so definitely want to emphasize what you said. But also, um, you can donate to Confident Christianity to the work that we do. We're also mm-hmm. a nonprofit organization. 
Uh, you can do that by going to confidentchristianity.com uh, and there will be a donate button there. But also, uh, I would love it if, you, if people would pre-order, because it's not out yet, pre-order Why I Still Believe from Amazon.com. And uh, we, we're going to have some pre-order goodies for people, uh, a package that goes with that. So uh, that would be what I would say. Yeah. Get the book. Yeah, I wonder if that comes if that passage would go out to the reviewers who did it also. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I'll definitely be telling people how they can get this book pre ordered at the end. Folks, this is a great read, honestly. It's very easy to read. I sat down as able to go straight through it and it's very entertaining at many, many times. <laughs> now Let's get back into it. We would be amiss if we skipped over the chapter about Jesus, Prince of Peace or Poser. Because really, if we talk about what keeps us in Christianity, it is Jesus, isn't it? Yes, amen. And so do you want, what would you like to know from Prince of Peace or Poser? (laughs) Well, the thing I think we could discuss is really what is it about who Jesus is that makes Christianity so important to you guys. I mean, some things you talk about, for instance, is the copycat hypothesis in there, but I think it's much more than a copycat hypothesis overall about Jesus. Yeah. Um, okay, before I get into that, I have to mention this because uh, he's a family of yours. Prince or Peace, Prince of Peace or Poser was the name of my master's thesis, and it was given that title by Mike Lacona. Yeah. So <laughs> I didn't know if you knew that, but I, did I thought not. you should. <laughs> I'll have to tell him about that. Yeah. So that chapter, there's a tribute to Mike Lacona there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, Jesus is a unique individual in human history. And if you were to look at the chapter seven on a large scale, that's really what chapter seven is about. It does deal with the copycat theory, and, and we'll talk about that. But um, it it Overall, it's saying there is act. There's no other person in history like Jesus Christ. This is somebody that we all need to encounter and deal with, and uh, say, who do we believe that Jesus is? Because he did some amazing things that are unparalleled, and he made some amazing claims that are also unparalleled, which worked out into uh, philosophy and theology of his believers, which has no match. In, in other religions. In a time when people are trying to syncretize all religions and say, hey, they're all doing the same thing, when you dig down into who Jesus is and, and what his story entails, you find that it's not matched by mm-hmm. any other uh, religious view or the philosophies that come out of those or even the theology. So what I'm treating in chapter 7 is the Christ myth theory uh, it just brushing into it a little bit, not not getting real deep, but mm-hmm. the Christ myth theory, which is the belief that Jesus was not a historical person, but rather that his story is a myth, mm-hmm. and it's similar to other pagan gods throughout time. I know you know this, but this is for oh, your yes. audience. So, yeah, so that he's compared to these, it, it's called the Christ myth theory or pagan myth theory. Um, and, you know, people will take it to where if Jesus did live, myth theorists will say he didn't have anything to do with the start of the Christian faith in the manner that the gospel was given, because they're all just ripoffs of earlier stories. So this one impacted me because I started hearing it from um, Muslim debaters. When I was doing debates with David and Nabil, I heard it used by Muslim debaters, and that really impressed me. I was like, what is going on with this? 
And so I started looking into it and I found that it was a really popular argument that it had, it was so popular, it had celebrity power behind it. Mm-hmm. So it had people like Bill Maher and Stephen Fry who were saying, uh, they were promoting it when they were on television. Um, and uh, I found even, even Richard Dawkins, um, who has said, we are all atheists about mo- most of the gods humanity has ever believed in. Some of us just go one God further. Um, so he's doing this. He's lumping all of the world's religious stories as well as their theology and philosophy into a simplistic category as if there's no truly significant differences. So the, the area that I treat in the book is I deal with a surface level argument called the copycat theory, which, um, which ends up, it, basically what it says is that Christ's uh, story is a copy of earlier stories. Mm-hmm. And couple couple problems with it. First of all, it's a post hoc fallacy. So post hoc fallacy is the fallacy of after this, therefore be, because of this. So because something came earlier, so there's some kind of correlation, it implies that the earlier thing was the cause of the second thing. And that's what's being stated with the copycat theory. So the way that this argument's made is copycat theorists will show a lot of uh, correlations. They'll say, look, there is um, virgin birth in all of these stories throughout time. Mm-hmm. And so they'll, they'll, they'll tell us about all these virgin births, and I'm, or they'll just actually, what they won't do is tell you what the virgin births were. They'll just say, everybody's got a virgin birth. So when I started to dig into that, Nick, I started to read these stories for myself to see, is there a correlation? Are there these virgin births everywhere throughout time and history? And what I found was that virgin birth could mean anything from, in these pagan stories, anything from a woman who had previously had sexual activities many times to uh, like a goddess who scooped male sperm out of the lake, that's the Zoroastrian uh, Mithra story, Mm -hmm. to the sexual intercourse of two god fetuses inside their goddess mother's womb, (laughs) so a Horus story, to a god who jumps out of the underworld via a rock near a river. So there's the Roman Mithras. Mm-hmm. And people are saying things that, like, Jesus' story, his virgin birth is based on these. Um, that broadens out, th- this kind of argumentation broadens out the term virgin birth to have absolutely no meaning. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> I mean, we think of virgin birth as being born of a human f- female who has never had sexual relations um, and is yet pregnant and then gives birth, right? right. These stories have really, I mean, if you're going to make say it's a correlation that caused Christianity, this is where they got the story from, then there should be a correlation, right? <laughs> there should be something that's the same. And these are not the same stories. Um, mm. So I give examples in the book of, um, you know, this is like saying you're going to take somebody out for steak and then you take them to McDonald's for a burger, right? Well, at least you still got beef as the basis for that. So there's some correlation. And then I, I extend it to say some of these virgin births are like saying you're going to take them to get a steak and you take them to Chick-fil-A. And you're like, wait a minute, um, well, chicken's not beef. And if I said, well, yeah, but it still nourishes the body the same way. You know, like it's still something that fuels the body. You'd be like, okay, that's still not the same thing. Or if I said, hey, if I pulled up to an auto mechanic shop, <laughs> that's the other one I use. And I say, okay, we're here to get our steak. You'd be like, what? I'm going to be like, well, oil fuels a human body, uh, the way, or oil fuels a car the way that food fuels a human body. So it's obviously the same thing. Mm. This is the kind of egregious correlations that are going on in copycat theory. 
And we're just scratching the surface. Like we're not hitting the philosophy that comes out of these stories or the, the, the theology that influences the philosophy, right? Some of these, I, I'm going to wrap it up because I, I know I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going on a long time here, but the, the differences that come out of these stories theologically, uh, you can see it in like Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 15, in which he's making the argument that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you really need to go do something else with your life. Like, right, you're, he says you're to be pitied among all people. Because if Jesus did rise from the dead, he's implying there is a way to live. And it is absolutely different from all of these other stories and these pagan gods, uh, and these theologies coming from these pagan gods. It's very different from that. And he actually says that. Uh, he says that there's no resurrection in verse 32 of First Corinthians 15. He says we should eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Mm-hmm. He's quoting in pagan ideology, right? Um, but he's telling the Christians that they're being influenced by this pagan ideology because in verse 33 it says bad company corrupts good character. So look what he's implying. Mm-hmm. There is a moral way to live in, in accordance with the resurrection of Jesus, which is not the same as these theories around you in the pagan world. And the, the pagan myth or Christmas theory just ignores that. Like it just completely ignores it. Like if these guys are stealing pagan philosophy, pagan theology, they missed it at the very basic level. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like they totally missed it. Mm-hmm. So, so this is one of the reasons I say that Jesus is unique in that his story is not like other stories. We can't actually find the correlation that pulls him back. There is a general idea um, that C.S. Lewis hit on between Christ and these other stories. And the general idea is that there's a problem of evil. It's coming from mankind. Mankind can't solve it. And so mankind needs the savior. Um, Joseph Campbell calls the hero. Mm-hmm. But we need the savior. We need somebody outside ourselves because we're the problem. So we're not the solution. There's your correlation. So all of these people have been looking for who will save us from ourselves. And when you look at what Jesus is doing on the cross, it's the only story like that. It's the only one that's actually combating our evil and doing something about it. Uh, in a way that is final and and um, actually treats the problem of evil. Um, so, anyway, there's there's the unique difference. Yeah. Before we go on to the next part, I would like to let everyone know, and I've already said, but I do indeed affirm the virgin birth, just in case there is any doubt whatsoever on that. But I, I, there's one more story I definitely want to make sure I touch in this, and that's the. Uh, a story about a topic near and dear to my heart, and that's beauty. And the, you know, there, there's an irony here that you talk about putting on a performance. We had all these female dancers set up to show the story of John one about the light has come, and then when it comes time, the pastor apparently doesn't want to do it because you know it's too scandalous and the outfits are too <laughs> sleazy and there, there seems such a problem here because okay I'm a guy I'm a great lover of female beauty that's why I married one <laughs> and and you know you did talk about John Mark Reynolds and another friend there I can't place who, who that one was right now sadly 
I actually did get in touch with John Mark Van We're going to see about having him come on the show sometime to talk about beauty. And, oh, awesome. And yet, it's so odd to me that many times that we have all this concern about beauty, especially female beauty, and yet when I meet people who talk about beauty, it seems bodily beauty is something they don't really want to talk about at all. And that's the topic I most wanted to hear about. And especially since we've got this little book in our Bibles called Song of Songs, and it seems to make a pretty big deal about human beauty. So, I mean, how do we as the church approach beauty in this way? Because, I mean, I can definitely say if I'm you know, watching a program like that, I probably will be thinking the ladies are awfully beautiful. But does that mean that we shouldn't do that? kind of thing because you know some guys might be tempted to lust i mean what does that tell us about how we view when yeah yeah i'm i'm glad that that chapter really resonated with you because it was it's new to me um discussing beauty as a an argument for god's existence for one which is what the other guy um phil talon that's the other guy that right. really impressed me the other guy the other professor uh, Dr. Phil Tallon at Houston Baptist University, he actually writes on the argument from beauty. Um, and John Mark Reynolds was the first professor I encountered who argued from beauty to the existence of God. Uh, but yeah, um, so real quickly, going back to the story uh, that you mentioned. So my dancers, I had them dressed as conservatively as you can get dancers dressed. They're in a full leotard with multiple layers of uh, skirts on and um, what the pastor said, there was no comment early on about during rehearsals about, hey, maybe we need to adjust this. It was the night before we were going to perform, and, and many people had seen these dancers. They were and they were girl, they were just young girls. And he called how long, them slutty. How, long, how young are we talking so, about here exactly? They're teenagers. Okay, mid, you know, so like thirteen through because maybe. I- the oldest might have been 16. I was going to get concerned if they were even younger than that, and he was saying that kind of thing about them. <laughs> yeah, but still, yeah. teenage girls, right? right. They're children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so the word that he used was slutty. Um, so he compared what I was doing, what I was offering in worship of God to a woman of multiple casual sexual partners, to something sexually perverse. Right? It, was, it was so jarring that that was the word that he thought to use. Mm. Um, it felt very violating to me. And I, I didn't know how to frame that back then. I didn't know how to say that because this was just so in your face jarring uh, when he said it. But I, I was started to wonder why would the human uh, female form be considered as just an object of lust um, so that we have to cover it up so much so that you know, if we don't, if, if the way he fixed it was he put them on all these baggy shirts so that we could see their form. And Nick, the thing that came to mind for me when it was, when, you know, this was going on, these kind of things were going on was the, um, the view of women in Islam that the woman is the greatest temptation to man Mm. and she has to be covered completely. Uh, Now that's not how Muslims are going to say it. They're not going to say, they're going to say it's out of respect and worship and, and all sorts of stuff. But as I'm reading Muhammad, he's saying that woman is the greatest temptation to man. So you can put two and two together and see that she has to be covered up so you can't see her. Um, so that to me was very intriguing in that why are we viewing women this way? And in the book I talk about um, in my encounter with John Mark Reynolds is how he's saying that you know um, beauty is really powerful and it can do, 
you know, one of the things we have to be careful with is that it can do great harm when we're going after beauty for the sake of beauty, you know, for ourselves, to give ourselves some satiation or something like that. Um, but that, and, and Phil Talon helped me put the words together to this, but that beauty is actually about searching for the one who is beautiful, the one behind the creation. So what beauty should be doing for us is pushing us on to seek after the one who made, in this case, the female form. So as we look at it, a female human, we should say, if we think she's beautiful, that why doesn't that trigger in us? Uh, her beauty is a reflection of the beauty of God himself mm -hmm. because she's made in his image, uh, just like the male form. Yeah. It's a reflection of God, just like creation, the natural realm. You know, we look at a waterfall and we say that is beautiful and it reflects the power and majesty and, and beauty of God. Well, so do women, yep. right? Yep. <laughs> so does the, the human female. And so I began to have my, my ideas formed. I'm still very early in thinking on beauty, but that was one of the things. Um, what, what challenged me um, was when Phil Talon said, Dr. Talon said, um, you know, evangelicals in particular were really good about talking about uh, God's truth as objective and God's goodness as objective. But for some reason, we've adopted this secular viewpoint on the beauty of God, that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And so we don't know what to do with it in the church and we don't teach on it. And that, that hit me hard because beauty in the natural world, beauty in music and in the arts, you know, me seeing dancers growing up, I was being drawn to God through the beauty of his creation. Mm. Uh, so yeah, it it really spoke to me when he said we need you know we need to teach better on what beauty is for and what it should do for us, and it's not supposed to be something of just you know that instigates lust, and so we need to cover it up. Yeah, yeah, we've got to be wrapping things up, but we'll make some closing points here about that, and that's fatter. Um. First off, I remember reading something on NT Right once and asking, what is the most beautiful experience you've seen this week? And I thought immediately, hmm, my wife, of course, what else? And, <laughs> uh, you know, it, if I'm a guy and I'm honest, I'm thinking a lady's super beautiful and it's physically attracting and tempting to me, I really need to check myself, woman check her. I'm responsible for my temptations in that sense. I mean... Uh, I mean, I if assuming she's not dressed way that's t entirely inappropriate, but I doubt that's really going to happen in a lot of churches. I need to check myself instead. And well, now, Maria, we do have to start wrapping things up, though. Unfortunately, I'd like to remind everyone sure. that the book is called "Why I Still Believe," and it's coming out on November fifth of this year. The paperback is seventeen ninety nine. The Kindle version would be nine ninety nine. That's on Amazon at the time of this recording. Now, Mary Jo, do you have a blog, website, and email where people can touch you, you if they want to find out more? Sure. Yeah, they can find out more from going to confidentchristianity.com. dot com, mm -hmm. and that's and then that they'll have a contact button there that they can connect with me. Um, they can also connect with me through Houston Baptist. This university, I'm an assistant of apologetics mm -hmm. in the apologetics degree program. So, if they're interested in pursuing apologetics at a deeper level, there's a fully online degree program 
that they can pursue. Mm-hmm. Now, do you have any? And that, sorry, that website. Okay. Sorry, that website would be uh, hbu.edu forward slash MAA. Thank you. And do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave for a deeper wars audience? Yeah, I would say one of the things I hope that uh, people take away from this book is that that not only is doubt okay because of the kind of thing you are, you're a rational being and you don't have God's knowledge. So, uh, of course, there are going to be things that you question in life, especially when you have difficult situations and very um, tragic experiences in your life. So, it's okay to have doubt. But the other thing is that um, when you are doubting whether or not God is there, one of the things that I challenge um, people to do in the book is to really consider what life would be like void of God, Mm -hmm. uh, completely void of God. So, you know, God is the reference, the point of reference for um, good and evil and objective morality and things like that. Really take that all the way out and see what that means for things like justice and injustice, your view of humans as having value, meaning, and purpose. Um, Because I think... I think many times people who are walking away from faith aren't fully investigating what it looks like outside of a view um, that there is a God. They're not fully throwing themselves into that view to see, is that really what they believe? They believe there's no such thing as justice or injustice. There's no such thing as good or evil. um, Or that if they do believe in it, it's all subjective to cultures and individuals throughout time and history that there's no actual reference point to say this mm-hmm. is how I know it's good and evil. So just really investigate that. Um, and it's not a, uh, hopefully it's the way that I say it in the book, it's more invitational. I'm inviting people to look at, at the world void of God rather than, you know, saying, trying to be uh, preachy about it. Mm-hmm. Well, Mary Jo, I'd like to thank you for coming on again. Your book's excellent and I hope we'll see you back here again sometime. Thank you so much for hosting me, Nick. It's great to talk to you. And next week, everyone, I'm still working out, but I'll make sure to get us a good show. For now, I'm Nick Peters. I affirm the virgin birth, and I am signing off.